Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle was written to encourage these believers in their faith and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for these believers, and then Paul commended the wonderful example that they had set for others to follow as they excelled in faith, hope, and love, as they passionately shared the good news of Christ with the many lost souls around them, and then as they turned away from idols and served the Lord from the heart based on their intense love for Him. In chapter 2, Paul had to defend himself, his ministry, and his motives, and He basically shut down the haters with the truth of that. He then wrote about the seriousness of rejecting the Lord and of opposing God and His people. And then finally, he expressed his deep and heartfelt affection and desire for these beloved believers. All right, now what? Chapter 3, verse 1. Look at this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, We thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Now here in today's passage, we first start out with a fact, which is this, that Timothy was sent to Thessalonica. Look what Paul says again. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer. Endure what? Well, at the end of chapter 2, Paul wrote of his affection for the Christians in Thessalonica. And he wrote of his intense longing to see them. But look, Satan hindered him from going. And that hindrance deeply affected Paul so much so that it eventually became unbearable for him. Think of it, the the Christians in Thessalonica were, they were really new believers and persecution is now hounding them and Paul is away from them and he needs to know how they're doing. He, He can't seem to find that out and that burden was so heavy on Paul and it was so heavy on his companions that they now had to do something about it. See, they couldn't endure it any longer. They couldn't endure it. They, the suspense of not knowing had reached a tipping point. So they finally acted and they sent Timothy to Thessalonica to find out what's going on. If you remember, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy first came to Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey and many souls were saved. They then went to Berea and then they went to Athens. Paul was actually alone in Athens for a little while, but then Silvanus and Timothy joined him. And here we find that while they were there, Paul and Silvanus sent Timothy back to Thessalonica because they could no longer endure not knowing how the new Christians were getting along in that city in the midst of persecution. So off Timothy went. Not long after that, Paul went to Corinth and that's when Timothy returned from Thessalonica with the very good news that the Christians in Thessalonica were doing well. That they were enduring, they were growing, they were glorifying the Lord. They were indeed well-pleasing to Christ, even in the midst of great affliction. Yes! (laughs) I mean, right? What a relief. What a relief. Here, Paul's reflecting 
back on that event of sending Timothy to them. Note that this would become a pattern for later ministry where Paul would go on and send Timothy to the church in Corinth, to the church in Philippi, and then to the church in Ephesus. Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.17. For this reason I sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So Timothy was to go and remind the Christians in Corinth of the ways of Christ, which they had seemed to have forgotten. And that wasn't easy for Timothy going, and that wasn't easy for Paul sending him. Look what Paul wrote about Timothy in Philippians 2.19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. So like the Thessalonians, Paul wants to know how the Christians in Philippi are doing, so he sends Timothy to find out that truth. He continues, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Think of that. They all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his, Timothy's, proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. So again, sending Timothy was a massive sacrifice for Paul. I mean, Timothy was his right-hand man. Timothy was a great blessing and a great encouragement to Paul. Timothy helped Paul. He assisted Paul. He boosted Paul, which is something that we all need in ministry. And Timothy did all that for Paul. But look, Paul was willing to give Timothy up in order to bless others. And that shows how deeply Paul loved the people of God and how deeply he loved the Thessalonian Christians. And one noted this. Paul was communicating his love to this church in this action of sending Timothy because sending Timothy was a great sacrifice for the apostle. That's absolutely right. Let me just remind you that a little bit about Timothy. Timothy was a teenager when he met Paul. His family lived in Lystra. His father was a Greek, and we know nothing of his faith, but Timothy's mom and grandma were faithful Jewish women who taught the Old Testament Scriptures to this boy that they loved so very much. As the women heard Paul preach when Paul came through Lystra on his first missionary journey, they then repented in Christ and they were saved, and so did Timothy. He too was saved. After being stoned and left for dead, Paul then got up and left Lystra. But then when Paul came back to Lystra a couple of years later, Paul invited Timothy to travel with him, which he did. On these travels, Timothy helped Paul to establish churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, Acts 16 and 17. During the three years that Paul was in Ephesus, Timothy was right there with him. When Paul was imprisoned in Rome the first time for two years under house arrest, Timothy was right alongside Paul much of the time, selflessly caring for Paul's needs. And so for many years, Timothy was a faithful friend, companion, and co-laborer with Paul, Paul the great mentor and Timothy the eager protege. Near the end of his life, as Paul was in the dreaded Mamertine prison in Rome, a cold, dark hole in the ground where the death row inmates were kept before they died, Paul wrote to Timothy. And those words in 2 Timothy were the last words that Paul would ever write that we know of. He said, come and see me. Please, Timothy, come and see me. And please, Try to come before winter and bring my coat because it's cold. And soon I'll be gone. 
So yeah, Paul sending Timothy to Thessalonica was a major sacrifice and a major act of love for Paul. We were left alone in Athens without Timothy so that you could have him. See? He really loved these Thessalonian Christians and we see that in him sending Timothy. Note that Note how Paul describes Timothy. First, he says, Timothy is a brother, verse 2. In other words, Timothy is a true believer. The word brother, it's interesting, brother or sister in Christ. The word brother literally means those who are born from the same womb. It describes our identity as Christians. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same heavenly Father, and He unites us in Christ intimately together. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we in Christ are members of the household of God, the family of God. That's the same idea, that we as Christians belong to God, that we are His beloved children, and He is our loving Father whom He cares for. Commentators describe Christians as a reconciled third race of humanity who have the same father. So now there's neither Jew nor Greek, but now in Christ, we're all just one big family. That's us. That's who we are. Now look, every earthly family is messed up because we're all sinners. But good news, in Christ, God says, I am your father now, and I am infinitely good, and I love you more than you can ever think or imagine, and I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I will never let you down, and I will only and always do what's best for your eternal soul. You are mine. I chose you. I adopted you. I wanted you, and I made you my own, and I will keep you as mine forever. And that's us in Christ. We are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And while this new race of humanity is made up of a bunch of saved sinners, hey, it won't always be like that. No, in glory, we will be made perfect. And we have oh so much to look forward to as brothers and sisters in Christ, as citizens of heaven, and as members of the household of God, the family of God. So, like Timothy, all of us in Christ, may I add, whether you like it or not, we're brothers and we are sisters. Paul also says that Timothy's a minister, our brother and minister of God. The word for minister here is the Greek word for deacon, and it simply means a servant. The idea is that of humble, submissive, personal service to God and to others because of Christ. This isn't talking about the official office of deacon here, no, but instead... This is describing who Timothy was, and it's describing what Timothy did. He was a servant who served. Who? Who did he serve? He served God, and he served the people of God. I'm convinced that, like brother, the word servant is simply another way to describe a Christian. I mean, isn't that what we are? I mean, glad servants of God, isn't that what we are? Isn't that who we are? We're glad servants of God. He saved us and, and we love Him. And so out of love for Him, we gladly serve Him. I mean, that's a Christian. We are all servants, right? We're all ministers of God and God's people. And we're all called to use our gifts for the glory of God and for the good of others in the name of God. Why? Love. Love is why. Love compels us, right, to serve and so that's what we do because we love him and each other. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of God. And that's how Paul saw himself first and foremost. I'm just a servant. 
The word servant that Paul used in 1 Corinthians literally means an under rower. What's an under rower? An under rower was a person who, who rowed on the lowest level of the galley of a ship. They were the rowers at the bottom. They were the hardest workers. They were the lowest of the servants. As one noted, an under rower was a one who acts under direction and asks no questions. One who does the thing he's appointed to do without hesitation. And one who reports only to the one who is over him. And that's how Paul saw himself in relation to God. <clears throat> I'm just an under rower in the galley and it's a blessing to be that. I'm just a lowly servant seeking to honor the one who is over me, my good God and Savior. So Christ is the head. And we, his beloved children, we're all servants who are called to do whatever he desires us to do gladly, willingly, and lovingly. That was Timothy. We learned this from Paul. And again, this word describes every, what every true believer should be about, gladly, faithfully serving the king who saved your lost soul. Why? Because love for God compels us to serve. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Well, who do you serve? Right? That's a question. We all serve something. Who do you serve? Many serve themselves. Many serve money. Many serve their jobs. Many serve the fading things of this temporary life. Many serve other people. But Christians are those who love and serve Christ first and foremost. Is that the case with you? Paul also described Timothy as a fellow laborer. The word for laborer describes someone who's engaged in an activity involving considerable expenditure of effort. So Timothy wasn't just a worker for the Lord. No, Timothy was a good worker for the Lord. Timothy was a hard worker for the Lord. He was a man who gave his all in working for the Lord, rightly so. He's a good example for all of us in Christ. I mean, don't we all want that said about us? Hard worker. He's a fellow labor in the Lord. She's a good worker, a hard worker, which is what the word implies, for the glory of God, knowing that that has eternal value. And it doesn't matter if we're apostles or preachers or missionaries or, or, or Christians who aren't called to a professional ministry. No, every Christian should be a good, hard fellow worker for the Lord, for the glory of God. There's a parallel verse in 2 Timothy 2.3. Look what Paul says to Timothy. He says this about Timothy in 1 Thessalonians. He's saying this to Timothy right before he died. Look it. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. And that's really what I wanted to focus on. Look, at we have a family tie in verse 1. We have the stress for Timothy to work hard. We have Paul telling Timothy to engage in spiritual warfare as a good soldier of the Lord. We have a stress for spiritual discipline and for hard work. And then we have the overall emphasis, which is for Timothy to give his life all out for the glory of God. And it shows us that these truths apply to every Christian who wants to be truly well-pleasing to the Lord, which is the desire of every true Christian. (laughs) So look, once we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, we then work to please the one who saved us, and we only have a short time left to do that good work. So, amongst other things, Paul tells Timothy to work hard for the Lord, 
the way a farmer works hard. Okay, what does that look like? Well, a farmer has to get up early. A farmer has to work late. He has to do things at all hours of the day and all hours of the night. And hard work is not a novelty for a farmer. Plowing, reaping, sowing, cold, heat, rain, harvest. It is hard work. And we in Christ are called to do God's work like that, whatever that work may be. The word hard working literally means to toil intensely, to sweat and to strain to the point of exhaustion. And again, we are called to work for God and for the glory of God like that. And again, this isn't just for Timothy, this is for every true believer. I mean, this matters, this has eternal value. And so because we love him who first loved us and saved our souls, we're called to put our hand to the plow and start working hard for his glory. Well, working hard at what? Working hard at the Christian life. Working hard to glorify God with the fading time we have left. Working hard at holiness. Working hard at being godly men and women. Working hard to become a good spouse, a good parent, a good child. Working hard at our battle against sin and Satan. Working hard at at serving Him and and at serving others. Working hard at, at using our gifts to minister to one another for the glory of God. Working hard in all these areas for the glory of God and to the very end. Certainly He deserves that much from us. Anybody? Right? When the physicians told John Calvin that he must cease from working so much or else he would die because he had a complication of painful diseases, he said, would you have my master come and find me loitering? May we not loiter when we can do God's work today while there is still time to do so. So I say, work hard at the God-pleasing life. Work hard at the battle against sin. Work hard at fighting in the spiritual battle at hand. Work hard at praying much. Work hard at staying true to God and His Word, knowing Him better. Work hard at serving and using your gift in ministry. Stay faithful, fight sin, serve much, stay in the Word, glorify God right where He has you, and work hard at that like Timothy. Note that Paul says that Timothy was a fellow laborer in... What? What's it say? In... you got to look at your... The Gospel... In the gospel of God. That is key. This is what drove them to do what they did. Okay, so what's the gospel? The word gospel means good news. And it's talking about the ultimate good news. It's found in Christ alone. The good news that Jesus can save your lost soul. That Jesus can wash away all your sin that condemns you to hell. That Jesus can take you to heaven when you die. That Jesus gives grace instead of wrath, hope instead of despair, joy instead of eternal sorrow, life instead of eternal weeping, and God instead of Satan. Come on, all other news apart from Him means nothing compared to this good news. See, we're all doomed because of our sin. Our sin banishes us from heaven and condemns us to hell. Sin stains us and blocks us from God and His perfect presence. And we are all in dire, eternal trouble apart from Christ. So what are we going to do? Jesus to the rescue. So, out of undeserved grace, mercy, and love, He, God the Son, left heaven and He came here. He took on human flesh. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. And then three days later, He rose up from the dead. And it's through faith in Him, repentant faith that results in loving obedience. That's what true saving faith looks like, if it's real. It's through that that sinners like us can be saved because of what He did on the cross in our place for everyone who believes. See, He took our punishment. He became our substitute for sin. He faced God's wrath 
and he died a brutal death so we who believe could be forgiven and go to heaven by grace through faith in him. Think about that. Heaven, glory, eternal joy that I don't deserve as opposed to eternal weeping, wrath, and punishment that I do deserve. What else matters? What, what else compares? Timothy was a laborer in spreading that good news to others, which, by the way, is a calling for every soul that's been saved. Some are called to the professional ministry, some are not. But every Christian is called to labor in the gospel of Christ. I mean, if we love him, how could we not labor to glorify him and to tell others about him? Think about it. As souls who have believed this good news and are now saved, as souls who now love this God who died for us to rescue us, loving labor is a natural result. Of course it is. I mean, it's our privilege, it's our honor, and it has eternal value. Timothy is a good example for us. Okay, so Paul sent Timothy to the church in Thessalonica. Why? Two purposes. Look what he says. First, to establish them. The Greek word for established means to make firm or solid, to strengthen and to stabilize. That's what Timothy was being sent to do for these Thessalonian believers. So Paul says, I want your faith in God to be strong, to be established, to be firm, to be solid, to be unwavering. And Timothy, I'm sending Timothy to make sure that's the case. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uses this word twice in its translation of Exodus 17, 12. It says this, Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported, that's the word, supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Then his hands were steady, there's that word again, steady, until the sun set. Read about that, Exodus 17, 12. It's a wonderful story. But look, just as Aaron and her supported and strengthened Moses, so was Timothy to do that for these Thessalonian believers. All right, how was Timothy going to do that? By being a cheerleader? Well, there's part of that. We're going to get to the encouragement part in a second. Is that all? No, how? Here's how. By reminding them of the truth of God. And by giving them more of the Word of God. Very clearly, that's how. I mean, what else can strengthen you like the Holy Word of God? What else can teach you and establish you like God's perfect Word? Nothing. Nothing. Look, the only way that you're going to be a strong, faithful, growing, powerful, mighty, overcoming, God-pleasing, Satan-angering, capable, fully equipped Christian is by you immersing yourself in the powerful, mighty Word of God so that it goes into our heads, sinks into our hearts, and then reveals itself with action out of our lives. And it can't happen any other way. And that's why our focus as a church is the ministry of the Word of God primarily because the Word of God is where the power's at. You say, no, John, the power is in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, He lives in us, yes, but the Holy Spirit primarily works through the Word of God, not apart from the Word of God. See, So Timothy was going to go to Thessalonica and immerse these believers in the Word of God so they could be strong and solid and unwavering and bold and firm for the glory of God. No other way that's going to happen. In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, it tells us some of the things that the Word of God does. Think if you want these for your life. It tells us that the Word of God is a means that God uses to convert souls. It's what makes us truly wise. You want to be wise? 
It, it causes true rejoicing in God's people. Do you want to rejoice? It opens up blind eyes. It, it, it endures and shows us what real truth is. Do you want the truth or do you want to lie? It warns us about sin. We need that. And it brings great reward to those who keep it. you want reward? And the call is to desire it and to eat it up if we're truly wise. Psalm 119 tells us that the word is the means that God uses to keep us from sin. Think that's important? It revives cold hearts. Anybody need revival? Renewal? Strength? It delights God's people. It's, it delights us. It strengthens us. It comforts us in affliction. Anybody need that? It encourages us. It teaches us the heart and mind of God. It lights our path and it keeps us in the right way and so on. You see the point here? In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, the Word of God is His perfect Word for us, and it alone provides the body of truth upon which every thought and every action is to be built. So it's a foundation to build your life upon. It's the one thing that is truly profitable to guide you, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. What else reveals God to us? Reveals our true selves to us? Reveals our sin to us? Reveals God's holiness and sovereignty to us? Reveals God's love and mercy to us? Reveals the way of salvation to us? Reveals God's judgments and laws to us? What else? Nothing. All that's vitally important to our souls, and the Word alone reveals these truths to us, which we all desperately need. See, the Word of God is the food that nourishes us in godliness and and our growth, our training, our strength, our maturing is based on the word of God. And that's clearly how Timothy would establish and strengthen the Christians in Thessalonica. So question, do you want to be a faithful man or woman of God? Do you want to be a mighty man or woman of God? Good, I like that answer. Growing, overcoming sin, deepening in your love for Christ, redeeming the time, bearing fruit that has eternal value. I mean, the Word is going to be the thing that molds you into that strong, established, mature, faithful man or woman of God. That's it. And that's why you need to be in a church that gives you that Word with passion and conviction. And that's why you need to be immersing yourself in that Word. Unless you want to be uh, settle for being a weak, mediocre, worldly, time-wasting, regretful, sorry kind of Christian. What about you? So... Strong or sorry, it's up to you. Because we're, we, we're intent on giving you God's word as much as we possibly can, but you have to come to the table to eat. And you have to read God's word for yourself, and many Christians don't even do that. May that not be the case here. Established, firm, steady, strong. That all comes by Timothy giving them the word of God. So Timothy was called to go and first establish and strengthen these Christians in the Word of God more deeply. And then second, he was called to encourage them in that great pursuit. The word encourage means to call alongside in order to help a needy soul. The pictures of a person coming up to another struggling soul, putting their arm around them and then gently telling them words that will help them to continue on. And that's what Timothy was to do for these Thessalonian believers. You think that was needed? I mean, especially in the midst of the hardships that they were now at this point having to endure. Encouragement. 
You know that encouragement is a main ministry of the Holy Spirit? Hey, all Christians are called to be encouragers, particularly of those who are weak and struggling in the faith, and it is a vital ministry. Why? Because we all struggle. We all struggle. Keep going. Don't you need to hear that? Stay faithful. Let me help you. Let's pray. Let me walk through your trial with you. Get up and keep pursuing the Lord. Lean on me. Stay focused on Christ to the very end, the goal. Him. Look ahead. Never quit. God is good even when life is hard. That's a good reminder. Stay faithful to the end because He is always, always, always worth it. What a needed ministry in the church amongst the people of God. Hey, we have enough discouragers in our lives, right? We need encouragers in the faith. And just as Timothy was to encourage the Christians in Thessalonica, so should we encourage one another because life isn't easy. Anybody? So, stay in the Word, please. Continue on in the faith. Stand strong no matter what. Remain fixed. Remain steadfast. Don't ever give up. And while we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God, that's what the Bible says, hey, he's worth all of it. So stay faithful to the end. Again, don't we all need this? Right? The Thessalonians needed it too, and that's why Timothy was sent to them. So he was to establish and encourage them in the faith, in their walk with the Lord, in their relationship with the Christ. But why? Paul tells us in verse 3, look, so they wouldn't be shaken by their afflictions. Ah, okay. Now we see some of the specifics here. See, they were indeed facing afflictions, tribulations, hardships, and struggles. The Greek word for affliction means to crush, to press, and to squeeze. This is a very strong term, which doesn't refer to minor inconveniences, no, but it refers to real hardship. The word was often used of crushing grapes to make wine. So it describes intensely hard circumstances, severe suffering and anguish, and brutal distress, oppression, and affliction. And that was these Thessalonian believers. And if you remember, it was like that from the very very beginning. Remember? Paul came to Thessalonica and many souls got saved, praise the Lord. However, trouble soon came That's life. A mob gathered together. The city was set into an uproar. And the people went after Paul. They went after his friends saying, those people have turned the world upside down. Paul and his companions escaped. But the new Christians in the city remained in the midst of that great affliction and severe persecution. And it never stopped. It was constant. Paul now sends Timothy to establish and encourage these Christians so they aren't shaken by their many afflictions. The word shaken means to be unsettled, disturbed, and to wag. Say what? To wag. Which means to be moved to and fro like a dog wagging his tail. So the wagging of a dog's tail pictures someone who's spiritually disturbed, shaken, and upset. So they don't know which way to go. They're here and then they're there. They're confused. They're shaken. They're unsettled like a wagging tail. They're spiritually all over the place. And look, if you're not careful, your sufferings, your afflictions, your tribulations, your hardships can do that to your faith and to your walk with the Lord. So take heed that you aren't shaken 
Wagged around by your afflictions. Take heed that your afflictions don't cause you to take your eyes off of the Lord. Take heed that your afflictions don't cause you to waver in the faith, to veer, or to become discouraged in your goal, your great goal of glorifying God with your fading life. Take heed. Don't wag. Don't be shaken. See, as Christians, our trials and afflictions either cause us to live closer to God and to be more careful and more purposeful about our lives, or else they discourage us and sidetrack us and shake us away from the Lord. And that's why we need to stay in the Word of God, right? And that's why we must continually encourage one another in the truth of God. Because life has a way of sidetracking us and shaking up our faith. Anybody? Paul knows that. We know that. So look. These new believers in Thessalonica were suffering for their new faith. Is that right? I mean, shouldn't Christians have the good life now that they are saved? Shouldn't Christians not have to suffer now that they have God as their good heavenly father? Shouldn't Christians be healthy, wealthy, and never gain weight? (laughs) Now that they're the beloved children of God? Answer? No, 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 no. Paul said in Acts 14, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? How? Some? Many. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. How many? All. All. And so persecution in some form is a promise to us as Christians. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, as a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised by suffering. No, instead, you should expect suffering as a Christian because it is a promise from God. So, afflictions and tribulations should be expected in some form because of your faith in Christ. Satan will oppose you. His people will hate you. Doing the will of God often comes with a price that's painful. And the Christian life is no cakewalk. No, it's a battlefield. And sometimes we get wounded in the battle. So biblically, the Christian life is harder. Better, but harder. Biblically, life would have less tribulation if you weren't a Christian. Yes, there's always going to be hardship, trial, tribulation, and trouble in life for everyone. But Christians face more of them because of our faith and the word of God says so. As Jack Andrews said, Christians do not go through tribulations to get to heaven, but Christians go through tribulations because they are going to heaven. So when you become a Christian, expect life to become harder. Expect greater pain and greater suffering. Expect more trials in your life. Expect it, but here's the catch. Jesus is worth all of it. Anybody? He's worth all of it, and glory awaits you. And and God knows what he's doing with us anyhow, and our call is to stand strong and to trust him and to not waver and to stay faithful until glory. Fact, tribulation refines and strengthens the church. Tribulation wakes us up from our spiritual slumber. Tribulation separates the wheat from the chaff and proves that we are indeed the real deal. Tribulation is often the best means that God uses to reach the lost as we exalt him in the midst of it. And biblically, suffering and tribulation is a good thing for the people of God that he uses greatly for his glory. As sure as night, life's troubles come. As sure as day, they're past. 
but surer still that endless joy when heaven we reach at last. See, the end result of living for the glory of God in this life that is filled with pain and trial and hardship and loss and suffering, the end result for us in Christ is eternal glory. And that's what we're living for, not this life, but the next This life is the battlefield, but soon we will be home. The best really is yet to come, but we're not there yet. Until then, endure. Keep going and never quit. Stand strong no matter what. Look ahead and press on to the very end and don't be shaken. He's worth it. There's no comparison. But for now, affliction. So be it. That's our reality but not forever. The story is told of a Christian man who was overthrown, shaken, by a series of troubles, including career disaster, financial ruin, and the loss of a loved one, all three at once. He was wandering the streets of his city in depression one day when he came to the place where a tall cathedral was being built. As he gazed at the construction, he noticed a workman chiseling at a piece of stonework, and he asked him what he was doing. The man explained that he was shaping an ornamental stone that had to be a precise shape and size to fit into its space at the top of the church. Looking at the workman for a while, the man lifted his face upward and he began to pray. He said this to the Lord, Lord, now I understand what you're doing in my life. You're shaping me down here so that I will fit up there. And that is true. That is true. This life is all preparation for the next life. And the next life is perfect for us in Christ. The next one has no pain or loss or affliction or trial or tears or death, only glory. So endure, trust Him, and don't be shaken. Here's the truth, verse 3. You yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Whoa. Here Paul reminds us, them, and us, (laughs) that they'd been taught by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to expect suffering, and not only that, but whatever afflictions were on their appointment calendars had been placed there or allowed to be placed there by the sovereign Lord. The word appointed means to determine, decide upon, and to destine. This word is in the present tense, which means that affliction is a continuing appointment until we finally see Jesus face to face. As one said, appointments with trouble are already on our daytimers. And God apportions them to us. Huh? Why would a God who loves us, why would a God who died to save us appoint afflictions to us? Here's why. Because he loves us. That's why, and even though we may not understand it, trials and troubles are necessary for our eternal good, and we are called to trust him with that. Oh yes, he certainly would spare us of these afflictions if they weren't necessary in preparing us for the next life. And so as one said, he sits by the mouth of the furnace into which his people are cast. And both the fervor and the duration of the process are regulated by his infinite fatherly wisdom and love. And that's right. 
See, he knows what he's doing and he knows what he's allowing in our lives. And remember, soon it'll all be glory for us, but now affliction is our reality. One noted, so powerful is the presence of sin in our lives and so ingrained are the habits of unbelief that the troubles of this life play a vital role in motivating us to be rid of them. Moreover, trials play a vital role in shaping the qualities of Christian character that are needed in the church. And that's right. Hey, the best Christians I know, the most faithful ones, the godliest ones, the most loving ones, those are the ones who have been forged in the furnace of affliction the most. So Paul sent Timothy to remind the Thessalonians of these truths so they would stay their gaze on Christ and on his word and also so so they wouldn't be shaken by their afflictions but instead that they would trust God in the midst of them knowing that God knows what he's doing and God knows what he's allowing and, and he's good even when life is hard. Sometimes it's good to remember that. And next week we're going to continue to be reminded of that in verses 4 and 5. Please, don't be shaken by your afflictions. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Please, don't let your afflictions cause you to doubt God's intense love for you, his beloved child. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is an irrefutable, eternal promise from God to all of God's beloved saved children. God says, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. The soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. God will not abandon you, his beloved child. He's not going to leave you, fail to uphold you, or let you sink, never. He will not let you go. He won't ever relax his good hold on you. He won't desert you. He knows you. He loves you. He knows you and what you need more than you do. He sees all things perfectly. He's working for your eternal good, and he is always with you, even though afflictions have been appointed to you by him, and even though life really stinks sometimes. So, When all around me is darkness and earthly joys have flown, my Savior whispers His promise never to leave me alone. And guess what? He won't. And being appointed to affliction doesn't change that reality. In fact, it proves it. Because it's what we need to prepare us for the next life, which is perfect in eternal glory. Trust Him with that. Fret not, He loves you. Faint not, He holds you. Fear not, He keeps you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to believe your word and help us, Lord, to be people of the word because we love you. Because your word shows us you. So, Lord, help us to say no to the fading things of this life more and more and to say yes to the eternal things, the things that glorify you, your truth that has eternal value. So Lord, may this encourage us today and also when we look at this next week and may we encourage one another with your truth and uh, help us to live like true brothers and sisters in Christ ought to live. For your glory, we love you. May we cling to you now in Jesus' name, amen.